City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 1211 1st Avenue North on the 3rd floor. So far and away, the most beautiful building in the skyline of St. Petersburg is Signature Place. Uh, Most of you know this. This is the building uh, that is right across the street from Owl Lang. It's the building that kind of looks almost like a sail billowing out towards the bay. It is an absolutely gorgeous high-rise here in St. Petersburg. And when the developer created it, when he sort of conceived of this idea, what he wanted to do was create a work of art that was a skyscraper. And it is very much that. It's an iconic building that once you see it, that sort of triangular piece coming off the side of it is just very different than any other building here in town and, and really anywhere else. And so the developer began to conceive of this idea back in 2005. And they started construction, but then something happened. Uh, The Great Recession began to take place. And so they were struggling to sell this building as it was nearing completion. And so in 2009, the building was completed. And things seemed to be clipping along. St. Pete had a new, beautiful building to add to her skyline until the sky started falling. Somewhere in 2015, large chunks of Signature Place begin to fall off of Signature Place and plummet down to the sidewalk surrounding the building. At at first they thought, well, maybe this was just some misapplied stucco and everything's going to be fine. They told the people of the building that they should expect a little bit less than three-quarters of a million dollars that would be spread out among all the people living there to just fix some things that they had going on there. So when the engineers began to climb the building and look at what's going on, they found something that they did not expect. The rebar that kept the outside of the building attached to the rest of the building was either misinstalled or missing entirely. And all of a sudden, a maybe three-quarters of a million dollars spread out over the 500 or so units in the building became nearly $10 million as they had to redo the entire outside of this 36-story building. Something happened. Now, exactly what happened is the matter of debate that is happening right now in the courts. But if you listen to the construction workers and the homeowners association, there of the building, what they will tell you is the developer cut corners. The developer wrote bad plans to try to make it cheaper, especially as they got towards the end, especially as the Great Recession started happening. You know, we're not going to be able to make quite as much money off of this. Let's just skimp a little bit. Let's just cut a few corners. Now, we'll see if the court decides if that is the truth about what happened. But for our purposes, how many of us have ever cut corners? You you and I, more than once in our life, whether it was about something big or something small, have cut corners. Think, Think about it this way. When you have to clean your house, there are two kinds of people when you have to clean your house. There are the kind of people that will see a speck of dust in a corner, and that must be cleaned, 
And there are the type of people who are correct in saying, it's one speck of dust that's in the corner. Everything here is going to be fine. We all understand what that's like. You know, you know when, you're, when you're mowing the yard, and like, there's that corner of your yard that you can't really get to. It's kind of a, you know what, I, the yard is mowed enough. Nobody sees that part of the yard anyway. It's back around a corner by a gate. We shouldn't even worry about that. Now, okay, those are silly ways that some of us cut corners, but let's, let's be a little bit more serious. How many times have you cut corners at work? Yeah, I know that, if I, that I have to fill out all this paperwork, but, well, do I? Do I really? Now, the time when we cut corners the most, if you're anything like me, is probably... When we have to do something tedious, frustrating, difficult, something that we don't want to do. When you have to do something, and you have to do it, and you don't want to do it, do you give it your all? I don't. I don't. Why? Because I don't want to do it. I don't want to be here. Right? And it's, my friend has a shirt, and he's an introvert, and his shirt that he wore to a party one time is, I'm sorry I'm late, it's because I didn't want to be here. How do, how do we do things when we don't want to do them? Now, let me throw something else in the mix. How do we do when we do things that we don't want to do for somebody we don't like? You can pretty much throw that thing out the window, right? If I have to do something that I don't like, and I've got to do it for somebody that I don't like, I'm probably just not going to do that thing, or I'm certainly not going to do a good job at that thing. All of us, all of us know what it's like to cut corners. All of us know those moments where we're just like, yeah, good enough. Done enough. That'll be just about as much as I'm going to do. It's interesting that this idea of, of cutting corners, of, of not having patience, going too fast, is exactly something that David is going to run into as we get here to our story this morning in 1 Samuel. You see, David has been on the run. He has been running from Saul again and again. Saul has chased him all over the country, and he's still on the run. He still has his band of no good people that are following him around, of all of these sort of men who, as we learned a few weeks ago, were debtors and people who got kicked out of the army, all of these ne'er-do-wells are following David around and have become his sort of band of brothers. And we're about to find David cornered in a cave when somebody shows up. So let's do this. Let's stand up and let's hear the word of God. Let's hear this story that God intends for us this morning. This is 1 Samuel 24, and here's what it says. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. Then he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost part of the cave. 
And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards David's heart struck him, because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out, of, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words, and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up, and left the cave, and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave, and called to Saul, My Lord the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of the men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day in your eyes I've seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore judge my cause and deliver me from your hand. And as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, David, my son? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you and you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that it, you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hands. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So if there's anyone that had an opportunity to cut corners, it was David. You see, you and I are quick to cut corners, and we are quick to treat our enemies poorly. But what do we see exactly the opposite of that in David? I know that, have you, have you seen the cutting corners pun coming? Have you, have you seen it? Have you got it yet? The corner of his robe? Yeah? Okay. Because this is exactly what happens. And there's, there's an element where there's, the story is supposed to be funny. Because the whole thing is set up with, literal potty humor, right? That David is hiding in a cave and Saul makes his way down there 
to relieve himself. And so there is, there's an element in which this story is supposed to have at least some ironic humor, if not something more. And so David is there. And Saul is in the cave in this unexpected meeting. And what does David do? Does David kill Saul? No. You just heard me say he didn't kill Saul. This whole chapter is about the fact that he didn't kill Saul. But here's the question. Should he have? Should he have? That's what David's men thought. David's men were pushing him. They were saying, look, look, God wants you to be king of the land of Israel. God wants you to be king and Saul not to be king. Do you know how you could make this happen? There's a very simple way for Saul to no longer be king and you to be king. David, it involves a sword or a knife and you right there. It reminds me of the the spy movie spoof where he refuses, where the bad guy refuses to kill the good guy in a sensible way. It's sort of the old James Bond movies where instead of just shooting him, he's going to tie him up to a chain and then dip him into a tank with sharks, right? No, why don't you just kill him? You have a gun right here. Kill the bad guy. And that's what the people are saying to David. David, just kill him. He's right there. We, we can kill him. You'll be king and everything will be good. It'll be exactly as God intended. And it's interesting because David uh, tore up. The English uh, Bible that we read today said persuaded, but the idea here is that David tore up his men for saying this. That he told them, No, in the strongest way possible. Which, there's again this ironic humor going on here. Because they're in this cave, which, while large, is not enormous. And David can't yell at them on account of Saul. So imagine what it would look like for David to vehemently tear up his men without saying a word. If you are a parent, and have ever wanted to discipline a child where one of your other children is sleeping, you know exactly how this goes. Right? You know this sort of the quiet, quiet rage when you are trying to get your kids' attention, to get them to stop doing something, and at the same time maintain the utmost silence. This is exactly what David did. You can sort of see this scene play out where David's men are like, but all of this, all of this sort of silent tableau of David not doing this, of David not killing Saul, shows us something What David is showing us is not just that our ends matter. Not just that doing God's will matters. But the way in which we carry it out matters too. See, was it God's will for David to be king and not Saul? At this point in our story, yes it was. But was it David's place to make that happen? No. No, it was. You see, 
what's going on here is David is being tempted to do something wrong to accomplish something good. Think about that, because that's something that we face more often than we think about. David is tempted to do something wrong in order to accomplish something good. Let's think about this in our lives. How many times are you tempted at work to cut corners, to cheat, to to cook the books a little bit in order to get that promotion? Because that promotion is going to allow you to have weekends off and all of a sudden you'll be able to spend time with your family. All of a sudden, you'll be able to go home from work early and relax the way you want to relax. All of a sudden, you'll have a little bit more money, and that'll fix everything in your life, right? And so you are tempted to do something wrong to accomplish something good. Or how about in your relationships? Most of us know sort of the biblical sexual ethic and and how that applies to our life, and so... We are tempted to do something wrong in order to accomplish something good in our relationships. What about parents? I think those of us who are parents feel this really acutely. I want my kids to be respectful. I want my kids to be honest. I want my kids to grow up right. And if I have to intimidate or scare them in order to make that happen, uh, well, you see, there are so many times in our life where we're tempted to take the shortcut, tempted to cut a corner, tempted to do something wrong in order to accomplish something good. It's interesting that Jesus was in the desert wilderness, not too far from where David is in our story. And when Jesus was tempted, he was tempted in a very similar way. Do you remember what the second temptation was? Satan said, look, all of this, all of this, this whole world could be yours. I will give you all of the peoples of the earth if you would just do this one thing for me. If you would just, for a second... Bow down and worship me. What was Jesus' temptation there? He was being tempted to do something wrong in order to accomplish something good. What was Jesus' mission on earth? Was it not to save for himself a people? And what is Satan offering him? That. I'll give you all the people. But what's Satan saying? But here's what you have to do. You have to do something wrong in order to accomplish something good. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. He says, I'm not going to do that. Just like David would not cut corners. Just like he wouldn't kill Saul to accomplish him becoming king. Jesus would not cut the corner. Jesus would not do something wrong to accomplish something good. And the actions of Jesus and David both point at our hearts. They both point at our hearts and say, 
But what about you, City Church? How often are you tempted to do something wrong to accomplish something good? It's interesting that what happens in your life and mine is we often cloak our own desires. We often cover our own wants with the will of God. I want to do this. I want to do this. I, I, mean, I mean, what I really mean is, uh, God wants me to do this. I really want this, I mean, God really wants me to get this promotion. I really want this relationship, I mean, God really wants me to have this relationship. I just, I mean, God wants me to have this. How many times do we cloak the things that we want in the language of the will of God when, let's be honest, we haven't read the Bible and sought the Bible's opinion on this issue. We haven't talked to friends in the church about this issue. We haven't prayed about the issue, but we're certain this is what God wants for our lives. We cloak our desires by saying, this is what I think God and all we're doing is painting crosses on the outside of our own stuff. We're trying to sprinkle holy water over my own desires. We are trying to say, yes, this is what God wants. And we really have no idea if that's the case. In fact, if we looked at it with any sort of glasses on, we'd probably say that that's the opposite. And so we are the kind of who far too often will do something wrong to accomplish something good. But that's not the only thing we see in this passage. We also see, in general, the way that David treats Saul. David has been on the run. He has been functionally homeless for years at this point. And he has been functionally homeless because every time he moves, Saul is out to get him. Saul is trying to kill him. And so he has gone from living in caves to living in forests to living on the sides of rivers to living with the Philistines. Wherever he can find refuge, he is going because Saul is chasing him. It's not a stretch to say that there is. And so how does David respond to his enemy? First, he shows him mercy. He doesn't stab him. He just cuts off the corner of his robe. And then, when he does reveal himself to Saul, does he say, ah, hey, punk, look what I've got right here. No. He shows the utmost respect and deference to Saul. In fact, it says that David even felt guilty for cutting off that little piece of Saul's robe that he did. Saul is being shown incredible deference by David. David is being incredibly respectful, thoughtful, and kind to his enemy. So how do you treat your enemies, City Church? How's that going? Well, you'd probably say, well, I don't have any enemies. Okay, fine. How about your rivals? How about that person in the office? That person at school? who does everything that you do just a little bit better? 
How about that person that has all of the things that you want, all of the relationships, family connections that you want? How do you treat them? How do you treat those who have wronged you? We would never use the term enemies because we're far too Christianized for that. But you know who your rivals are. You know who those people who have mistreated you are. And the question is, how do you treat them? How do I treat them? For most of us, we treat those people with tolerance. We treat those people as if we don't want them around, just go away from me. In fact, the phrase that many people would use is, you're dead to me. You have wronged me. You have hurt me. You are dead to me. And so we treat that person as if they don't exist. If we go out to a restaurant and we see them, we ignore them. If we have to come into contact with them at work, we do as little possible to be around them. They're dead to us. What's interesting is that the Bible's call to you and to I the Bible's call to us is not to tolerate our enemies. is not to functionally ignore our enemies, but to show active love towards our enemies. David's not just called to be merciful to Saul by ignoring him. By sitting in the back of the cave and pretending none of this happens. What does David do? David actively loves Saul. Does Saul deserve that? No. Saul is literally trying to kill David 24-7. And David turns to this man who is literally trying to kill him and actively shows him love. Not a passive tolerance, not a I'll say hi to you, I'll acknowledge, no, no, no. An active seeking out Saul is so struck by this that he makes a request for David. He makes a request that you don't cut off my name and my family. You see, because this is what the Old Testament kings did to one another. This is what your enemies deserve. They deserve to be cut off from the land of the living. To be cut off from God's people. And really, as you think about it, this is what all of us deserve for the ways that we don't love our enemies, for the ways that we try to do good things or bad things to accomplish good ends. You see, all of us deserve to be cut off, just like Saul was asking David not to. Because all of us are the enemies of God. And the degree to which you are able to see this. The degree to which you are able to see that you are an enemy of God is the measuring stick by which you will understand how good the grace of Jesus is. You see, Jesus loved us actively when we were still his enemies. Jesus loved us when we were still hostile in our minds towards him. 
And it wasn't a passive love. It wasn't a tolerance. It wasn't just letting us exist, but rather was the sort of love that said, even though you are my enemies, I will be cut off for you. Because that's exactly what the cross was. The cross was Jesus being cut off from the land of the living, being cut off from God's people, being cut off from God himself in order to make his enemies the sons and daughters of God. You see, this is the shortcut or the long cut that Jesus was taking. When Satan said, I will show you all the kingdoms of the world, it would be all yours if you would just worship me for one second. What Jesus was choosing was not just to do the right thing in the right way, but he was choosing a path of death for you, the enemy of God, who cloaks our own will and desires in religious language. An enemy of God who doesn't love others the way that God calls us to love. You see, how much we understand that we have offended God and His holiness will be how much we understand how much He loves us. Because the farther away from God we realize we are, the farther He had to go to bring us back. And so as we begin to understand that the love of Jesus is greater than all of our sin, we will say, yes, I realize now my sin is greater than I thought it was, but that makes the grace of Jesus all the more sweeter. Because it take even, took even more than I realized. And as we begin to understand this dynamic, the dynamic of the gospel of, yes, I was broken, separated, an enemy of God. But because of His great love, Jesus took the long way, took the hard way to accomplish my salvation. We'll be struck by the love of Jesus. We will be struck by the good news of how much He loves us. It will cause us to love and sing and wonder at the goodness of God. But not only that, when we really believe it, it will begin to spark in us a trust. A trust that a God that loves us this much will give us all the good gifts that He has for us in His so we no longer have to force his hand. We no longer have to kill Saul in the cave. We no longer have to try to do something wrong in order to get something good in our lives. Rather, he is going to give it to you at the right time. And not only that, when we realize the depth at which Jesus has loved us, it will change the way we interact with others. And it specifically will change the way that we interact with our enemies. Because we'll realize that we were enemies of God who were shown great, abundant, active love. So now when we see that rival, when we see that person who has wronged us, we can show them great and abundant and active love. May Jesus do that in your heart and mind. Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful that you took the long way. That you 
died for our sins. Even though it came at great cost, the cost of your son's life. Jesus, we are grateful that you have loved us with this sort of love. Would you forgive us for the ways that we are so quick to do something wrong, to accomplish something right? Would you forgive us for the ways that we simply tolerate our rivals and those who have hurt us instead of loving them like you promised? Would you change us this week? Would you help us to see that you have turned enemies into family? 